We have an ego problem, but it's not what you think, and it's much, much worse than you think. A brief history lesson. From 1945 to 1971, America experienced exponential growth in almost every category. Scientific discoveries, the housing market, technology, medicine, salaries, the list goes on. In fact, because this happened so consistently for such decade after decade, it changed our economy and it changed our entire way of life. There's a graph up here on, on, the, on the TV I want to show you about growth and violence. What we learned, if you look at the beginning of the 1900s and the end, there was a lot of violence that occurred. And so after World War II, we kind of came up with this new method. We learned, okay, if we keep growing we will get further and further away from violence. When we stop growing, we will naturally go back to violence. And so the America's whole agenda was we have to make sure we're growing in every category because it will make people happy and they won't get angry and we will stop hurting each other. This was the plan. And to be honest, it worked for a little while. So they saw when the violence, the violence goes down because that's when the growth goes up. So our new obsession in America, and in the church as well, which I will get to in a bit, we decided, okay, our purpose is to elect politicians and to promote leaders who don't necessarily symbolize goodness, but who stimulate growth. This is what we need most. Not those who symbolize goodness, but to stimulate growth. And so in companies, in churches, if you weren't growing, your company wouldn't change the expectation and go, okay, we've reached our limit. Let's work at this level Instead of changing expectations, it is common and still today, you just change leadership. It's a leadership problem. you got to find somebody that will help you continue to exponentially grow. Daniel J. Borston in 1962 began to warn America, saying, okay, this cannot happen forever. This exponential growth has never been seen in history, but just knowing mankind, knowing the limitations of earth, eventually this will stop happening. He has this quote, I think it's really helpful, from his book, Warning America, he says, we suffer from extravagant expectations. We expect too much of the world. This is why you and I are often very discouraged, by the way. We need to remember the scriptures don't say that hope is found in the world. Amen. It's found in something else entirely. By harboring, nourishing, and even enlarging our expectations, we create the demand for illusions to deceive ourselves. In other words, he's saying we are so obsessed with growth and everything exponentially increasing forever and ever, we even pay people to just fool us that we're growing. We don't care. Lie to us. Change the metrics. We just want to have this feeling no matter what, things are getting better. And so we as an economy, we as politics, we in America just put band-aid over band-aid. We take a burnt cake, we throw more and more icing on top and saying, we're growing, everything continues to get better, and we're trying to achieve a utopia that does not exist outside of Jesus Christ. Eric Weinstein, he defines this illusion as ego. Ego is a, a alliteration here, or sorry, an acrostic for embedded growth obligations, he says the biggest kind of problem we have today in American politics is we keep trying to serve the ego. Politics just keep promising we will get better. Things will always increase. There will be no dip. We will only get to higher and higher heights. The problem is especially since 1971, most economists point to this year trying to figure out what happened that made the economy change forever. 1971, that exponential growth started to flatline because it had to. 
But instead of owning the stagnation and changing our expectations, we obligated ourselves to spin the facts to satisfy the ego, to say, okay, we will always grow. We will continue to change leadership. We will do whatever it takes to act like we're growing. And now you're asking yourself, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the rapture? What does this have to do with church? I'm glad you asked. Stay with me. I think this kind of ego has infected the church and it has wreaked havoc on the people of God. We have obligated ourselves to grow at all costs. I think to summarize the American church industry, we run off this idea. Keep showing that you're growing. At all costs, always show that you're growing. And so we don't, we elect politicians, but also we promote pastors who stimulate growth. We actually want them to stimulate growth even more than stimulating goodness. We have story after story, you can look online, of pastors doing horrible things, and yet they're still allowed to be in leadership. How come? Because they know how to get butts in the seats. They know how to get bigger budgets. They know how to get more buildings. But at what cost? The problem we have is our theology. We cannot imagine a season of God's blessing that equals stagnation. Many of us cannot imagine a theology where there's a season in your life where you will suffer Youth, we have been raised to believe if you're suffering, you're doing something wrong. But is that the truth of the scriptures? I think it's why we are so attracted to the rapture theology. The rapture theology, real quick, is to say we will, as Christians, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the trumpet will sound, we will leave this earth, and now for seven years, good luck, world, because we have been holding this place down, now we're gone, now hell is going to ensue. And I want to say, I think one reason why we love that teaching, which, by the way, was not invented until 1820. We love that teaching because it fits our theology. We must keep showing that we're growing. And the only way suffering must come in tribulation, it means we must be out of here. We have a poor theology, not understanding much of the Christian life is that of suffering and complexity and grief. Welcome to church. Keep showing that you're growing works really, really well as long as you can keep up with the exponential growth. That's all you have to do. It works super well as long as there's this thing like a plague that doesn't come and bring everything to a halt. When a plague comes, when disaster ensues, now what do we do? What is the answer? And so pastors in this moment, politicians in this moment, CEOs in this moment are trying to keep showing that we're growing and we're hollow inside. We're not fixing the real issues and we're terrified of the future. We are, like Paul is saying, grieving without hope. The church in Thessalonica experienced this kind of halt in progress. They, it left them shaking in disbelief and it led them to begin to develop conspiracy theories in order to make themselves feel better. See what happens, Paul comes into town and he preaches the gospel message and he says, look, believe in King Jesus who rose from the dead and you will have new life in Christ. Come on somebody, let's preach. We've conquered sin, Jesus has conquered Satan, Jesus has conquered death itself. Paul says, oh death, where is your sting? The church in Thessalonica is like, this is it, this is the good news. Let's tell everybody, look guys, victory doesn't belong to Rome. It belongs to the kingdom of God. People were getting together. We see in 1 Thessalonians 1, their faith was exponentially growing. Their hope was exponentially growing. Their love was exponentially growing. What possibly could go wrong? And then people started dying. And when they heard Paul say, 
New life in Christ, abundance, death, no sting. They assumed we shouldn't die, right? What happens? Because our Sunday school teacher who had all those, remember those little candies that have the strawberry wrapper on it? That amazing Sunday school teacher that would sneak it to all the kids. She's laying in her grave. What about the young men of God who are incredible preachers really raising up the church in Thessalonica? They died of a disease that they couldn't even figure out what it was because it was 2,000 years ago. They started to get stressed out. They started to wonder what is happening. So they're looking to Paul saying, what about this abundant life in Christ? What about, I thought we were supposed to keep showing that we're growing. I thought it would be victory after victory after victory. What do we do? People are dying. Life is still hard. I'm still grieving about life. What do I do, Paul? We got to keep showing that we're growing, right? And Paul, in this context, writes 1 Thessalonians 4 to comfort the grieving. Not to tell the grieving to stop grieving, but to give purpose to it. And so for us to grasp the heart of this passage, we need to spend time defining a few of these terms. Verse 13, you see this word, asleep. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. We see the same exact word verbiage in verse 14 as well. What does that mean? It simply is a euphemism of someone laying in the grave. If you have seen a body before who was dead, you know that their soul is gone, right? There's a, there, you know it's them, but it's not them. And so what they would say back then is just say, okay, he is just asleep. We even see Jesus saying this in John 11, referring to Lazarus, that he's asleep. Because the soul is no longer there, his body is just laying. Now this is also a really bad theology that American church has just botched. See, we believe that when we die, our soul is with the Lord. There's a lot of debate on what that exactly looks like, but we know our body is here on earth and our soul is to be with the Lord. Now, a lot of people think this is what happens for eternity. We do not turn into angels. Trust me, you don't want to be an angel. You want to be a human that's received the redemption of God. We have a greater story and song to sing than angels do. Okay? Many misunderstand heaven thinking, that's it. We're now a soul in heaven and our body is gone. That's only true in a moment before the second coming, which we're reading about right now. 2 Corinthians 5.8, for example, kind of talks about um, what this is. Uh, should be on the screen, and you guys are amazing. In fact, we are confident, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay, so there is a moment in time when you die. Those who have all died in past history so far, they are away from their body at the current moment, and they are at home with the Lord. But here's the great thing. When Christ comes, he will awaken our bodies. He will resurrect our bodies, and we will reunite with Christ and we will have a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's so important to know this is why the body is asleep because Jesus is going to wake it up again. Really, really helpful. Verse 15, people try to get charts together. What does this mean when he says, um, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is just saying, look, the dead in Christ will not be forgotten. You will be with Jesus, but so is your Sunday school teacher that just passed away. So is your brother that died prematurely. So is your daughter. All these things. He's saying, we're all going to be with them. That's all we need to see from that passage. From that verse, excuse me. Verse 16 is what, again, a lot of people get their flannel graphs out. And it's so interesting. And it's the easiest way to get people to feel like they know a lot about their Bible. The problem is, it's usually hogwash. Look at verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is Jesus with a shout. 
I love this, with the archangel's voice. And most people spend their whole time going, which archangel is it? Well, I think there's only one that's mentioned in scripture, so it's probably him. And so we start debating and trying to figure out what will it sound like? How will he show up? You know, with the trumpet of God, man, is it a bunch of trumpets or just one huge trumpet? I don't know. What, is it gonna be the key of C? I don't know, maybe because that stands for Christ. I'm not sure, right? And so we get into all these things. What does the trumpet sound like? Is it gonna be in the east? Okay, all this stuff. The dead in Christ will rise first. Are they gonna like come out just like when Jesus rose again, all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, but all of a sudden the bodies start walking around like zombies. We look at this verse and we miss the whole point. More than a prophet, at this moment, Paul is being a pastor. Okay, us with our scientific worldview, Western worldview, we think, okay, it's so important to look at these details, this, that, and the other. And I think we should. I think we should look at this and try to figure things out, but we cannot miss the whole point. The whole point here, Paul is being a poetic pastor that is comforting a church who has lost loved ones. And they're trying to figure out, are they going to make it to heaven? Did they sin in a way that now all of a sudden they won't be in heaven anymore? And he's saying, they will be there. You will be there as well. He's comforting them. This poetic imagery just shows the victory of Jesus. It's good for us to remember that. We feel like we're losing often. We feel like, how are we going to win this war? He's coming, and it's going to be a beautiful spectacle, and just his presence will make all things right. Verse 17 is where everybody really zeroes in on the rapture. Then we who are still alive, what's funny is a lot of them thought that they would be among those numbers. They're all dead, okay? There will be a generation that reads this passage, and they will be the ones who are alive when this happens. And then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Some people want to use the phrase here, raptured up, in the clouds to meet the Lord. This phrase, clouds, is just, um, you see all throughout the biblical text, this just is a poetic imagery. Plus, it's real. You'll see them in the clouds. It just shows the presence of God. God is going to be present. He's going to come back down to his creation. And we're going to meet him in the air. Now, we have airplanes and helicopters and drones today. So it's like, okay, cool. But back then, it's like, what? We'll be in the air? Like, how does this even happen at all, right? And so we will always be with the Lord. And again, he says to encourage one another with this. Again, this theology of a rapture really... um, really loves the idea that there's no way Christians go through immense suffering. And so to make sure that we don't, God's going to take us away and then all the bad stuff happens. Now, again, it's not the view I have. I think the rapture and the second coming of Christ are synonymous. I think that all happens at the same time. Now, there's a lot of debate, especially in the last 200 years, especially in the American church. You even talk to people in the UK, which I have a few friends there, you know, no big deal, but whatever, you know, I have a few friends there and, um, They're like, you guys are weird when it comes to the rapture. I'm like, I know, we're weird about a lot of stuff. Aren't we better? You know what I'm saying? Aren't we the best? Feet, not meters, okay? Praise God. Yards, I don't know. I don't even know. Okay, so um, here's the essentials, okay? So I'm still praying about going through the book of Revelation with you. I'm not going to lie. I'm terrified, okay? Uh, Partly because I don't know what I'm doing. The other part is because some of y'all have such passionate thoughts about the book, and I just feel bad to just take that balloon and pop it and go, you're wrong, you know, but we might do that. But here are four end times essentials that we've believed throughout church history. I think church history is important. I think it's helpful to know, usually if you come up with something that's never been said before the last 2,000 years, it's wrong. Okay, that's where I'm at in my theology. If it's brand new, 
there's a reason, and let's let that thing die, okay? But here's four end times essentials that this is what you need to bank your life on, okay? Number one, Christ will come again, amen? This is essential number one. We know this. We can do a lot of debates. How's it going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. He's coming back. A lot of people actually call it the third coming of Christ because the second coming, I think this is such great language that the mystics use. The second coming is that moment all of us who are Christians can say, that's when Christ saved me. That's when I knew that he's my savior. That's when I knew that Jesus' love is better than life itself. That's the second coming in your life. But then there's a third coming where Jesus will come again. I love that poetic imagery right there. He's going to come back. We need to look forward to that. But the second thing is the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Most people misinterpret that. Most people think, okay, just the righteous will be resurrected, and those who are wicked, their body won't be resurrected. No, we see it. We see it all throughout the scriptures. We see it in Daniel 12, which in your growth group you're going to look at this week. We see it in John chapter 5, the resurrection of the, of the righteous and the wicked. So they will be brought back to be brought before the Lord to be judged. That's the next thing that we can all agree on. There will be a final judgment. You can read this in Revelation 20, for example. And this was amazing, okay? Because the final judgment as Americans were like, ah, that just sounds so mean. But then you look at the evil in the world. You look at all the terrible stuff happening. And you're like, praise the Lord that these people will be judged. They will get what they deserve. But then also praise the Lord that you and I in Christ, we will not get what we deserve. Amen? So we look at the final judgment. And here's the great thing. Now and forever, when this final judgment happens... Evil is no more. God has fully dealt with it. And now we can see there will be no crying, no more weeping, no more tears, right? No more disease. It will finally be judged. And the last one that we have missed as Americans, and I'm picking on America, I don't know why. It's the only people I know, I guess, (laughs) besides those UK friends. All right, the next one is new heaven and new earth. Again, this is greatly missed within our theology, and I think it's why we have such a poor view of our earth. I think it's why some of us have a poor view of taking care of creation, and we don't really care about this world. We just want to get out of here. Well, hate to break it to you. We're coming back, okay? And it's going to be even better, all right? It's going to be miraculous. We see this, for example, in Revelation 21. These are the four essentials of end times. This is what we must focus on as believers. Those four essentials, not the rapture that all of a sudden it's going to get real bad, but we're not going to be there. Those seven years, good luck, mark of the beast, all this stuff. Again, I want to extend grace and mercy to those who believe that. I have great people I love that believe that. I just, at this moment in my life, I just don't see it, but I don't think it's something to divide over, okay? And I would love to talk about it with you later. I'm just, I kind of was playful in the beginning. I, my dad believes in the rapture, okay? So, you know, he can be wrong sometimes. You know, whatever. But um, <laughs> these four essentials are what give us great hope in the midst of suffering. Those four. Not that we're going to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing, and then right before bad things happen, we're gone, and then, ah, this is great. Your life, you're going to suffer. Most of you, I think all of us, I don't know, you're probably going to die. Welcome to church. <laughs> but Paul is saying this to encourage us. How is this encouraging? He wants to wed our grief with our belief. He doesn't want to get rid of the grief. He just wants to connect it with our belief. That's a big verse that we see here in verse 13. Verse 13 says, um, uh, concerning those who have fallen asleep, this is the line, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So he's saying we're going to grieve, but not in the way that the world grieves. In 2021, this verse hits differently. 
Because as a pastor, in years previous, before 2020, People would grieve, it would be different moments. You know, we'd all have, some people have just great seasons of life and other people's are doing really bad. Kind of across the board, we're all like, yeah, I'm tired of this. You know, like we're all just kind of like, ugh, you know? And so I think even here, this passage hits all of us collectively in a way that it hasn't in most of our lifetimes. We're collectively grieving together, but we have to recognize as a lot of us are collectively grieving in a way that has no hope. Even if we're believers in Jesus, I'm greatly discouraged to look at how our not necessarily our church, but the church. Yeah, some of us in our church. I'm going to say it, right? I'm discouraged the way that we are trying to put our hope in things that Jesus never said to put our hope into. So I want to look at two ways we've been grieving without hope. And both of these are totally opposite of each other. And I think I will at least offend everybody in the room after we list both of these, okay? It's just been one of those weeks. My email is caleb at passioncreek.church. So... Um, <laughs> By the way, we have a meal plan for him. You'll get an email uh, later uh, for him. <laughs> Not even, we, whatever about him, but for Shelby and for baby Eden. Hopefully, Caleb. Anyways, moving on. Um, number one, a lot of us have looked to conspiracy theorists. Actually, that's the passage you see here. There are conspiracies, and that's why Paul is saying, I don't want you to be uninformed or even misinformed. Here's what happens when people die. Why? People were getting scared of death. And they started coming up with these conspiracies about how those, those people weren't actually Christian. That's why they died. They start spinning these facts and making us all feel better. And it gives momentary relief. But then more people die. And you die. And it's like, oh, no. Now, let me say, I don't blindly trust the government. Okay? So I'm not saying do that. But I am a little bit discouraged how often we are getting caught up in those conspiracy theories and we're not caught up in the word of God. It's very discouraging. I also am discouraged that a lot of us are like, I don't know how to share the gospel, but my goodness, we're sharing those conspiracy theories left and right. It's really discouraging. But why do we look to conspiracy theories? Why do we do it? I think one reason is it gives us a false sense of certainty. I think when we're grieving, we just want to feel like we have answers. And conspiracy theories are the best way to say, we got to figure it out. Nobody else does, but here's the real answer. And we can kind of sleep at night going, okay, it's all go to going to, you know, wearing a handbasket, but at least I know what's going to happen, right? I think another reason is it simplifies the problem, typically by pegging it on one enemy. We like conspiracies because, okay, that's the bad guy. If we get rid of him, everything will get back to normal. That seems really hopeful. Great. Who's got a gun? Let's take care of this right now. You know, that's kind of like the mentality a lot of us have. That can be clipped and I can get in real big trouble, okay? So it's good thing I'm in charge of that. Um, but you know, we look to these conspiracies and we think, that guy's the enemy. Get rid of him and everything's okay. The problem is you can get rid of him and you'll, wait a minute. It's maybe even worse. Because we have an enemy that's not of this world, by the way. It also, I think it gives you the satisfaction of being right and being rare. Like, nobody else gets it but me and my conspiracy theory folks. We got the answer. Y'all are the worst. And it's just not bringing hope. I think it gives temporary hope. I, th- I think it, gives, it allows us to grieve in a certain way. But even something that discourages me, I think even when data is brought to conspiracy theorists, it doesn't even change their heart. It just simply hardens it. We don't even believe data. We don't even believe truth. And don't interpret, I'm not trying to point at certain conspiracy theories. I'm too much of a coward. What I'm trying to do is to show you as a general rule A lot of us are buying into things. And even when facts are presented, we don't believe. And that's when you know. 
you're just grieving by just trying to blindly grab onto something other than Jesus Christ. We have a hope. We have an answer. We have assurance. And it's not what the conspiracy theorists offer. The next way, so I made half of you mad. We're in Arizona. Probably 70% of you mad. Now let's go to the other 30%. We have looked to comforting therapists. Now, I am not against counseling. I think it's a gift. I, when I reference having a spiritual director, I'm talking about how he's not just a mentor. Uh, Tom Ashbrook is a, is a counselor to my soul. He is a therapist for me in many ways, okay? So I bring to him my anxieties. We talk about my family ge- genealogy. We, we work through things that therapists bring through. The problem is I think Christian counseling is great. There's a lot of us taking on themes and concepts that worldly counselors are giving, and we think it will give us the answer. See, worldly counseling says, look, all you have to do is to process your trauma, and now everything will be better. Okay, wounds, you can move beyond wounds, but you will still have scars. You can still come up, think about those moments in the past. And guess what? We are, we are not in heaven. We are not in the new earth. Life is still hard, and you will still cry. Comforting therapists try to convince you everything will be better. You just have to say it out loud, have a counselor. And and many of them say, just find your authentic self, what makes you, you, and that's what will give you freedom. And oftentimes that's the very thing that will bring enslavement to your life. Conspiracy theorists tend to show, okay, there's the wicked person, let's get rid of them. Comforting therapists just show, I'm just a wounded person. So once my wounds are healed, I will be okay. Friends, by his wounds, we are healed, amen? This is through Christ and Christ alone. Now, again, don't misinterpret. Caleb said, make sure they know counseling's good. It is, okay? But it's not the end-all, be-all. Why? We were made for Eden. We were made for a better world than this, but we're not living in it. That's the problem. And these pathways of conspiracy theories and comforting therapists, they may give momentary comfort. I won't doubt that. And they may give us a sense of control, but please know it is grieving like the rest of the world without hope. There's a lot of people who are hurting today because of it. Now, Paul is saying again, we don't, he's not saying don't grieve. He's saying don't grieve without hope. And we as Christians do much damage to say there's no such thing as mental health. There's no such thing as depression. No, these things are true. Why? Life is hard. It's difficult. It's the worst sometimes. <laughs> Welcome to church. I keep doing that. Write this down though. Larger belief does not lessen the grief. I'm so comforted by John 11. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is dead. And it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now here's the crazy thing. I don't think Jesus has a belief problem. Do you? And yet he's grieving. And here's the even crazier thing. Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. He still cries. He still grieves. We do such a disservice to the Christian church when we say, believe in Jesus and you'll never be sad again. In fact, in many ways, it doesn't lessen the grief, it deepens it. Because we know what the world is supposed to be. We're so stinking mad that sin has entered into this world. We're mad the way we've contributed to it. We're mad the way the world has contributed to it. And we need the grace of God. This quote by Henry Nouwen has brought me a lot of joy in the last two years as a pastor. He says, we are inclined to think that when we are sad, we cannot be glad. 
But in the life of a God-centered person, sorrow and joy can exist together. See, in the Christian life, larger belief does not lessen the grief, but it does strengthen the hope. We need to lean into that. Until you and I are at home with Jesus, there will be much to grieve. And there will be pastors who promise you otherwise. They're just doing what America has told them to do. Keep showing that we're growing. Don't flinch or else violence will ensue. The last 18 months has been hard as a pastor, and I know it's been hard for you. But a lot of pastors that I know have kind of gone astray by kind of spreading this false gospel that your grief problem is a belief problem. So they just simply say, believe more and everything will get better. I think temporary happiness does happen, but it eventually multiplies the misery because it's only a temporary happiness, but then you're let down yet again. And I'm not going to lie. I wish I can just say, believe in God and the grief will be gone. But it's not true. I wish it was true, but it's not. I can't read the, Bible, the biblical text and come away saying life's going to get better and better. In fact, the more I read it, the more I apprentice under Jesus, I'm more and more convinced it's going to get more difficult. It's going to get more complex. But Jesus is worth it. And guess what? Every other alternative is still terrible, right? They're still suffering. But we're more honest with it because Jesus has dealt with it. And that's how Paul expects this news to be encouraging to us. How can you and I grieve with hope? Verse 14 gives us the answer. He says, notice, by the way, you notice how different this, is, different this is? We could have spent this whole night putting charts together, coming up with names, shouting out people. No, this is such an encouraging, convicting passage that we can really become more like Jesus through. Okay, verse 14, it says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. This is our our hope, write this down. Our hope is anchored in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the hope. Why? The birth. Jesus, here's what's amazing about the birth. Jesus, God himself, understands our deepest pains. Hebrews talks about this constantly. We have a God who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Whenever you're going through heartache, when me and my wife have gone through some difficult times, the worst people that talk to us, act like they know what's going on, but we know their life's been fluffy and they've never dealt with what we're going through. I'm grateful for them, but I'm like, (laughs) move on, you know? But the best people in those moments of, 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 of heartache, I'm like, you've been through this. You know exactly what I'm feeling. I'm gonna listen to what you have to say. And you know what you'll find often? They usually have nothing to say at all. They're just with you because they know that's what you need. This is what Jesus has done through his incarnation. We celebrate Christmas every year. He is with us. Don't don't miss that. The second thing is the death of Jesus. This reminds us that Jesus has kept us from the ultimate pain. Yes, we have pain here on earth. Yes, death still hurts, but he's taken away the sting because life still exists beyond death because of Christ. We now have eternal life. 
We believe we deserve eternal death, separation from God for eternity. But Jesus took that on our behalf so that we can take his, his righteousness, his eternal life, life with God forever. Again, there is still suffering in this life, but when we look at the death of Jesus, we will know we are saved not from every suffering, but you and I are saved from the ultimate suffering, and that should give you and I so much joy. The last thing is the resurrection of Jesus. This means Jesus will redeem all of our pain. And let me encourage you with this. Jesus doesn't specialize in reconstruction. He specializes in resurrection. I've had some friends come up to me, and they're terrified. I cre- we we cremated our grandfather, but now you're talking about resurrection of the body. We haven't, like, we got rid of it. Like, what does that mean? Jesus knows what to do, okay? <laughs> he doesn't like, oh, no, it was spread across oh, the whole forest. How do I get all? He'll be good. You'll be good, okay? And it's cheaper, so go with cremation. You know what I'm saying? But some of us, and it's a legitimate sphere, and I want to give you comfort. He doesn't have to reconstruct. He completely resurrects. It's a new thing. But it's a beautiful thing. You'll be able to identify with it. And the other thing, he doesn't just resurrect our bodies. He's going to resurrect our, this whole world. And how do we know that? He proves it by first resurrecting himself. And he's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the hope you and I have. J.R.R. Token has this phrase in the Lord of the Rings. Everything sad is going to come untrue. We can hold on to that truth because of the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that's sad will one day become untrue. God always works through birth, death, and resurrection, by the way. We're almost done, but this is even in your calling, your career, your purpose, your relationships. Here's what I've noticed in my life, and I'll just zero it in on this church. God, what he loves to do, he loves to give you a birth of a vision. He loves to all of a sudden give you this new idea, this new hope. For me, it was starting this church, and I had vision that we would have so many incredible things happen in the life of our church. I did not, in my five-year plan, ever think that a plague would hit the world. You know, I did not, in my plan, ever think that we'd just be kicked out of a movie theater. I did not, in my plan, think that we'd be at a Sunday night church now. So I know you guys, when you wake up in the morning, you're just like, I just want church. You know, you're just dying to go to church. I don't know. Uh, that's how I am. But yeah, I know that. And, but what happens is you have a birth of a vision. And what God does through the, through the micro, not just through birth, death, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but also in your life, he, he allows your vision to die. And some of you right now are in a death season where you believe something for your family. You believe something for your career. You believe something for your spiritual life. And you can't help but look around and think, Everything I thought would happen hasn't happened. In fact, it seems to go the opposite direction. This is what God does. He specializes in this. But if we keep saying, just keep showing that you're growing, things will get better and better and better, we miss out on beautiful gospel truth. What God does, he births something in you, and then he kills it. I love it. Jesus, God gave me a vision and enough arrogance to say, yeah, 23, I'm starting my own church. Who let him do that? You know what I'm saying? But it was a birth, and I said, let's do it. And people rallied around it, and we did it. And then he just kept doing this to me over and over and over. You think you're good at that? You think you're better at that? You know? Oh, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore, but I ain't no quitter, so I'm going to keep going. There'd be some weeks where I would, like, sing in worship, and I'd just be like, is there one person here? You know, and I would just, like, because I can't hear them. Oh, Lord, help us. It's a death of a vision. And in many ways, in different parts of my life, I still think I'm going through death. But what he does, he specializes in this because then he brings a resurrection. And for too long, what's that line? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. 
even on this earth, God is working in your life, even it looks like everything is dying. That's actually the way God works because then he brings about resurrection. Many of us cannot imagine God using death, but friends, that is all he does. Find joy in your death period. Find joy in the grief because one day all things that are sad will become untrue. As we close, I want to figure out how can we participate in a practice of Jesus that anchors our hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? So I want us to practice what's called the Maranatha prayer. Now, this is a very simple prayer. It's literally that just means, Lord, come. So I encourage you this week, kind of breathe in and breathe out and just say, Lord, come. Lord, come. I want you to think about your suffering. I want, to think of, I want you to think about your sorrow, what's been going on in your life. Present it to the Father and then just simply say, Lord, come. Maybe this week you're going to say, Lord, come and be with me in my suffering. Maybe you're, this week you're going to say, Lord, come and give me purpose today. Lord, come and heal my wounds. Lord, come and cry with me. And maybe all you can say is literally, Lord, come. I did that on my walk this week. I just kept saying it over and over. Lord, come. And I'd be silent and just kind of use this as an offering to God. Lord, come. I just, I want these things to be made right. I want all these sad things to become untrue. I'm so burdened by the sorrows of our church. I'm so burdened by the sorrows of this world. Lord, we invite you here. We invite you to come back. Lord, come. And for some of you, you need to say for the first time tonight, Lord, come. Lord, come into my heart. Lord, come save me from my sin. Lord, come rescue me from my despair. Lord, come and adopt me into your family. But I encourage you to do this now and throughout the rest of this week. How can God use you in your life by simply you saying out to him, Lord, come. That's how we grieve with hope because he's coming back.